Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, it's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways. Accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, easy to use. Uh, actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, you can see your stats on the app and online. And you can check them out at rapidshot.com. Uh, great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now. Uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, a lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot, thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On this episode of the Hockey IQ podcast, we bring on Andrew Brewer. Andrew is a video coach currently with the Florida Panthers, uh, but in his past life, and something we can dig into a little bit deeper, uh, was his experience with hockey at the highest levels, the Olympics. Uh, he worked with Team Canada for World Junior Cups, World Cups, Team Canada Olympic preparations, and shared a lot of great ideas, a lot of uh, ways to think about the game in a better light, whether that be from being a hockey parent to how to watch film or what makes the elite the elite and uh, even dove into his uh, university studies and the power of incentives. So this is a really great episode for a lot of people. So very excited to share it uh, with you. Let's do it. Welcome to Hockey IQ podcast, Andrew Brewer. You've got uh, quite the background, Hockey Canada, Leafs, uh, now with Florida. Also uh, just started a new business here, 200 foot coaching. So excited to have you on. Uh, thanks for having me, Greg. I look forward to uh, talking today, and hopefully, uh, I'll be able to learn something from you. Yeah, let's uh, let's dive in. Maybe a quick thirty-second background of where you were and where you've come today, and, and kind of what you're uh, going to be planning here in the future. Perfect. So, uh, my background: I played hockey growing up, and um, you know, I played AAA high school hockey. Uh, wasn't good enough to you know make anything of it. I uh, went to university, and when I was in university, I was taking a business degree, made a video for a class project. Um, from that video, it got shown to the athletics department and shown to the head coach of the hockey team, and he invited me to be um, the video coach for the UNB hockey team. They'd never had a video coach before, so that I got my first opportunity in hockey out of a video for class uh, business class project. Uh, that led to me being the video coach for UNB, which led to me being the assistant coach, which led to me being on the national steering committee, which led to me you know, coaching youth teams there. So I, I got a ton of experience uh, work at the University of Brunswick. We were lucky enough to win uh, two Canadian university championships over uh, three years in 2009, 2011. Um, then, you know, oddly enough, we were, I was in Florida on vacation with my wife and she said, you should work in the NHL. I said, well, I'm not going to be able to work in the NHL because, you know, I'm working Canadian University Hockey. So I, I literally Googled, how do you uh, become a video coach in the NHL? Um, and it popped up that uh, Hockey Canada was hiring a video coach at the time or a manager of national team's videos. So I applied. I was lucky enough to uh, beat out about 300 other applicants and get to be the video coach uh, for Team Canada for three years. So I worked there from 2011 to 2014. I uh, went to three World Junior Championships, uh, four World Championships, a World Cup. Uh, the 2014 Olympics, uh, working in the 2014 Olympics, get to know Mike Babcock well. Uh, after uh, 
the Olympics. He brought me on to uh, Detroit as an assistant coach with the Red Wings in 14-15. Then when uh, he went to Toronto in 2015, I joined him there and uh, uh, spent five years with the Toronto Maple Leafs as an assistant coach. Uh, lived there for five years. Now, lab uh, this past uh, fall, I joined the Florida Panthers as a video coach. And uh, now I'm living in South Florida, working with the Florida Panthers as a video coach. Um, and recently, I've just started a business, 200-foot coaching, and uh, the idea is to take the lessons that I've learned, working with uh, 25 different NHL head coaches, uh, six of the top 10 in NHL wins, um, and try and help uh, minor hockey associations and, and coaches across uh, uh, North America and the world in uh, providing affordable training for uh, minor hockey coaches. So trying to help coaches develop and uh, be able to take that next step. Yeah, let's uh, let's take it rewind back to Hockey Canada. I'm assuming those were some interesting experiences that you had going overseas, working with a bunch of different players, um, and, and obviously uh, with like the World Juniors, those kids come together for a very short period of time. So that's got to pose their own challenges. So, so maybe give us some more background into uh, working with Hockey Canada. Seems like a good 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 place to start. Yeah, it's uh, it was a great experience, and you know I'm. I'm thankful for that opportunity because uh, coming from Atlanta, Canada, I obviously had a limited network um, in hockey, but I, I'd go to Hockey Canada and I'd get to work uh, my two major events a year, be a world juniors and a world championship. Um, so each uh, year I'd be able to work these two different events with, um, you know, multiple uh, head coaches and get to meet all these different people. So, you know, I'd get to be around all these great hockey people on a regular basis and just get to be in the same room as them and listen to them and, and learn from them. So um, it was just a, an amazing opportunity to get to be around all these different top athletes, coaches, managers, and be able to learn from them on a regular basis. So, you know, I'd go to a world junior championship, uh, Don Hay, my first world juniors was Don Hay, um, was a head coach. Andre Turnier was one of the assistant coaches. He's now, uh, obviously the head coach in Arizona. Don Hay might be the winningest coach in the WHL, you know, he's coached there forever. Um, you know, legendary Western League coach, um, got to know, uh, Kelly McCrimmon, who obviously, uh, is now in Vegas. And, and so that's all for my first, uh, international events. So, um, the world juniors are special, especially in Canada. My first year was in Edmonton, Calgary. Um, like you said, it's, it's the most probably exciting hockey. It's so adrenaline filled, uh, it's full of mistakes. It's full of emotion. Um, so it was a pretty cool experience to be good to be a part of that group. Um, and it's just so different from the world championship, just the, the pace of it. Um, the world championship is, is eight games. The world juniors is only, uh, four games. Um, so it's just a, a completely different pace and a completely different event. The world juniors is such a adrenaline fast pace, um, everything on the line. And the world championship is such a build up to the, uh, crossovers, the quarterfinal, semifinal, final. So, um, and just the maturity of dealing with an NHL player versus dealing with, uh, like I said, a 16-year-old Nathan McKinnon or Jonathan Jurat, um, or even a Connor McDavid uh, in 2014 when he uh, played for Canada at that age. So um, it, it's just a completely different experience getting to be around uh, all those different players. But uh, like you said, it's it's a guys coming together and um, trying to be a team, and that's it, it's a whole different thing. And that's where uh, I, I'm trying to take that back to minor hockey tournaments because. You have to, it's different planning for a whole season and planning for a two-week tournament like the Olympics. So how do you get all the planning done beforehand and how do you try and build up your schedule and build up your preparation for one pinnacle moment like an Olympic gold medal game? 
So how do you prepare for, you know, a world championship, a world junior championship, the Olympic games, you know, like what goes into that? Um, you know, do you, are you coming already with video of like, here's how we're going to play and you throw that up on the screen and it runs on the same piece. How do you do the team building? I'm curious what, uh, what all came into that for you guys. I'd say the gold medal uh, or the gold standard of preparation would have been the 2014 Olympics. Um, that was literally, you know, two years in the making and preparing for that event. Um, and I'd say no detail was uh, left unturned on that event. Um, so for that event, we hired Ralph Kruger. When I was with Hockey Canada, we hired Ralph Kruger, um, who was uh, still in Europe at the time. And um, he was our basically international liaison. He went and uh, scouted all of the European team. So we knew exactly um, how each European team would play Sweden, Latvia, Finland. We knew their head coaches. We knew their national identity. We knew what their team structure was. Um, I started working with 2012 um, during the lockout with Mike Babcock uh, preparing our team systems, how we want to play, creating a systems package, creating systems video um, of our players doing what we wanted them to do. Um, so then that led to a, a summer camp in 2013. That was a you know, the famous Canadian ball hockey game where uh, we taught our systems. We went on an international ice. We got all of our players together to try and uh, get to know each other on and off the ice, what our expectations were, um, what to expect when they got over to Sochi, because obviously Sochi is a different experience uh, than being in downtown Vancouver, which they just had in 2010. So um, that entire camp was, you know, was three, four days about preparing them to what to expect. So when they got off the plane in uh, in Sochi, they already had an idea. They had a systems package, which exactly was how we were going to play. We knew exactly a pre-scout of who our first opponent was, how they were going to play, how we um, uh, were going to utilize their lines, what the living accommodations were going to look like, what they were going to have when they arrived. So it was just making sure that every single detail was looked after so there were no surprises, uh, which I think led to probably the most dominant uh, performance of any uh, Canadian team of all time, three goals allowed in six games. I think it was something like 70% uh, possession or Corsi. Uh, so it was just a completely dominant um, event and just the level of planning. Um, the TJ Oshie shootout, everyone remembers, you know, he took the six shots in the shootout. Um, we had all that prepared on an iPad. We knew exactly what his three moves were, how he comes in the same way each time. And then he has three options. He goes five hole blocker uh, glove. Um, we had that all prepared on an iPad. So if our goalies wanted to look at it, they could actually see exactly that TJ Oshie was the top American shooter. This is all of his attempts in the NHL, and this is the three locations that he shot. Um, so we, we kind of knew as much as possible before it was going to happen. And you, know, you try and do that day-to-day -day in the NHL, but you, you just can't go to the, that level of detail because you don't have that time. It's more in that sense, uh, like preparing for a, a football game because you know they spend two, three weeks preparing for Sunday. Um, the Olympics, we literally spent two years preparing for a two-week uh, event in February 2014. Pretty impactful event. And yeah, that was absolutely dominating. Uh, I'm curious of how you guys set the expectations for each line. I'm assuming buy-in was pretty easy. Like everyone wants to play for Canada and willing to do anything for that. But, you know, how did you go about saying, here's what I need from your line, your line, and even just like knowing what kind of roster you're building, how you wanted to build the team structure around the assets that Canada has? Well, that was when Canada was really going through a, uh, a transition in that we weren't taking checkers to international tournaments anymore. Um, 
we weren't taking uh, fourth line guys to play on the fourth line. We were taking first line guys um, from NHL teams that were going to play on our fourth line. So we had a, an expectation and um, an identity that this is how we're going to play. It doesn't matter whether you're Sidney Crosby and Patrice Bergeron and Kunitz, um, or if you're, you know, on our fourth line, which I think at the time was like Tavares and Martin St. Louis and so on. So, um, we had the same expectation for everybody. We took the best players available. Um, that was the decision by uh, Steve Eisenman. And, and and that's one thing that I, I think Mike Babcock does uh, exceptional is that he treats everybody the exact same, whether it's me, whether it's, uh, you know, Steve Eisenman, whether it's Sidney Crosby, um, whether it's the equipment guy, he has the same expectation and intensity with all of us. Um, so there's a, an incredible level of fairness with it all. So, um, you know, just the expectation was that, you know, everyone was going to do what was needed of them. Um, we were going to leave no detail unturned. And uh, whether you're on the first line or fourth line, I couldn't even tell you what the first line was, um, just in the sense that we literally, we almost went minor hockey and, uh, you know, rolled four lines out and were able to just play anyone um, because of the depth of the team and, and the way that everybody played. Um, I, I, I know that we never at all got in that event, got into line matching and got into uh, uh, shutdown. So it uh, different events, you, you play differently. But in that specific event, we, we just literally minor hockey doored it and, uh, you know, roll guys out and, you know, made sure that uh, everybody was playing to the best of the ability in the way that we want to play. That's awesome. I love that. Just roll roll four lines. Don't worry about line matching. You know, your, your team's got the best preparation possible. So that's, that's cool. And then how do you compare that with a uh, world junior? Like you probably, you know, especially with how kids develop at different levels, late bloomers, you can't do two years in advance for world juniors. Like that's gotta be yeah. quite a different experience. Uh, exactly. And you never really know who's going to be on the opposition team. Um, so you just try and build up as much of an idea of, how each country plays um and then uh, you, you know as it's going on you're pre-scouting every pre-tournament game you're pre-scouting every game that's going on through the tournament um trying to get the best idea um but the work with the world juniors it's all about trying to get your team to play the best and play the way that you want to play um because again with canada if you're if you play how you want to play it, it doesn't overly matter how the rest of the teams are going to play in a lot of ways because you, you should be the you know, the best, um, when it comes to depth, we, a lot of times they have the best players, they have the best, um, options to put on the ice. So it's, a, with that event, it's really about determining how you're going to play and getting your players to, to be able to play the way that you want to play well, which is much harder at that level. Um, getting kids to, um, calm down to a certain extent and be able to, you know, play the system we want to play, um, and, you know, think and to stay structured. Um, so, it's I'd say that coaching the world juniors, I think overall is way more challenging than coaching the world championships just from the level of maturity and not saying that they're immature, like they make bad decisions, but um, they're just not able to process information. And when you get back to hockey IQ, they're not able to process that information as quickly um, and take uh, instructions quite as well as guys who are more experienced. So what kind of information are you presenting you know and how do you present it differently based on exactly that like pros have been around this they've seen many things and they can really draw on a lot of background knowledge and you know younger guys just haven't had that so i'm curious of how you present it differently or do you just take the same stuff and simplify it further do you give more why so the, the current generation really digs into it i'm curious what that's like yeah so like i would use an example of a neutral zone portrait so you play a team like finland um, who constantly has a very passive 
uh, one, two, two, that really looks like a one, four neutral zone four check. Um, and it's just trying to get your players to understand how they're going to play, why they're trying to play like that, and how we need to play to be able to beat it. Um, like into the, with the 2016 Men's World Championship team, um, we basically told them, um, hey, they're going to do a passive 1-4. They stand four guys across the blue line. We need to come back, build speed, dump the puck in, and attack with speed that way because possession entries just don't work um, when they have five guys standing across the line. Um, but, you know, and it's, it wasn't a spite on our players, but, you know, they didn't believe us to a certain extent, and we tried to carry the puck in too much. Uh, we never ended up, you know, being able to get into the offensive um, zone. But when we played them again in the gold medal game, our players, uh, not that they didn't believe the coaches, but they'd gone through that experience themselves. They were able to adjust and they knew what to expect now. And now they were able to um, adjust the game plan and they felt more comfortable uh, doing kind of what the game plan was. So it's trying to convince them um, as early as possible to follow uh, what you know we're trying to get across and why we're trying to get it across. And, and they don't do it maliciously. Um, but they've done something like a Connor McDavid carries a puck um, into the zone his entire life. And, you know, he does it because it works. So trying to convince him to, you know, in this situation, he's going to need to chip the puck to another guy with speed. It, it just takes um, some convincing. So um, obviously we didn't do a good enough job convincing them uh, before the regulation uh, game. So luckily by the time it came to the uh, gold medal game, we were lucky enough to, uh, you know, show them how we need to play. And they executed at an amazing level and were able to win the gold medal. So do you uh, have all of your gold medals stacked up on your wall or where, where do you keep them? No, it's, it's funny. So I have five um, Olympic or five rings, sorry, uh, two Canadian university, an Olympic, a world cup and a world championship. And I, I'm not hundred percent sure. I have them hidden somewhere in my house, um, but I, I, I could not even tell you right now where I, <laughs> where I have them hidden. Um, uh, I'd have to you know, probably ask my wife. She'd probably have a better idea. But uh, I, I do have pictures uh, of the three, uh, especially the three international events um, and ju- signed jerseys from those events. So if, if you win, you get up on the wall. If you don't, I've got a you know, whole pile of team pictures from uh, you know, teams I've been on that uh, didn't achieve the ultimate goal in a closet. So, uh, no, I, it's been pretty cool. The, the Olympic uh, uh, ring was a pretty, a pretty amazing thing to get. Um, you know, it's, it's not a Stanley Cup ring, but it's still – you know, I, I'm two thirds of the way to the, uh, the triple gold. So I'd love to, uh, someday to be able to finish that off. Yeah, that would, that'd be great. Obviously you, you don't win unless you have some seriously good, talented players and, and staff members. So from that, I'm, I'm wondering what are maybe some epiphanies you've had through your, your coaching journey, um, and going through all of this, you know, what, what are some major items that like, wow, this is unbelievable. I'd say one thing is um, coaches sometimes always get knocked out. Oh, you know, this guy is an idiot. He doesn't do this. You know, this guy is in, you know, it happens in more in big markets, whether it's Toronto or Montreal, he didn't do this or he didn't do this. No coaches are trying to lose. They never bench a player. I've never been around a coach um, that has benched a player because he doesn't like someone. He's benching someone because he genuinely believes that um, doing what he's doing gives him the best chance to win. Um, and I've been around, like I said, uh, 25 different NHL head coaches. Um, so I, I think sometimes coaches don't get realize that, you know, they, they, they're doing what they truly believe in and they're doing what they believe is best. What that is may actually not be what's best. Um, 
you know, we all make mistakes. Everyone has biases and, and makes mistakes in life. Um, but coaches are, are still incentivized to try and do what's best. So whether that was Randy Carlisle, whether that's Mike Babcock, whether that's Sheldon Keith in Toronto, they all wanted the same thing. They want to have the parade down Bay Street. They want to win the Stanley Cup and bring it back for the Toronto Maple Leafs. They all approach things differently, um, but they all did what they believed was going to uh, help the team win and what they needed to do to help the team win based on their uh, life experiences and personal beliefs. So I, I'd say that's one thing is I've, I've yet to meet a coach that you know is benching a player or not playing someone just because they don't like them or because of this or that, like, and Hey, sometimes coaches, uh, I work with coaches who do overlook things like, you know, being late for practice or being, um, this or that, you know, not having good personal appearance. Um, you know, sometimes they overemphasize things that maybe they shouldn't overemphasize, but at the end of the day, if they think that you're going to help them win a championship, um, they're going to give you the opportunity to play. So, um, the biggest thing is I, I'd say to, you know, kids and, uh, you know, junior hockey players all over is if you got cut, it's not because the coach didn't like you. It's because the coach truly believes that what he's doing is going to give him the best chance to win. Cause at the end of the day, the coach is incentivized to win, um, especially at the higher level. Um, he's incentivized to have the best team possible. He's incentivized to win. So what he's doing is what he truly believes in. Um, he's not going to start cutting kids, the best kids just to, uh, you know, spite you. Um, and cost him his job and his livelihood. So um, I'd say coaches in general are, are trying their best and, and have the best intentions, although it may not always work out uh, like they intend. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, incentives are, are much more powerful than people realize, and they, they're the main driver of what happens. So I, I agree. You never bench someone or like put curb ice time if you don't like them. You know, you, that's you one thing. treat everyone fairly. I really agree with that. One thing I've actually been interested in is uh, I took economics and behavioral economics um, after the fact. Um, I just find it really interesting because at the end of the day, people respond to incentives. Um, and that's one thing I, I, in my coaching and even in my hockey journey, I'm, I'm trying to always find the best way to incentivize players um, and to incentivize people to do what you want them to do. Um, and, and, you know, that's always the issue, you know, guys going into a contract year, they get more points in a new contract year, they may try harder because of going into a contract year. What's the incentive? How do you create incentives? How do you modify incentives? Uh, and that's where I find the behavioral economics side just, you know, massively uh, interesting. I got into free economics, uh, you know, back when it first came out, however long ago. And I've, you know, read, you know, tons of Richard Thaler books, tons of uh, books on the subject, um, Amos Tversky. So I, I find it really interesting. Uh, I wish I could, uh, you know, bring it more to hockey, but I you know, just haven't found a way to uh, get that in yet. Yeah, as, as a man who also studied economics at uh, college, I fully agree with you. The power incentives is absolutely powerful. So I'm curious, maybe uh, some ways that you've been able to see, whether it be yourself or coaches you've worked with, incentivize. Uh, effectively it, it sounds dumb but one of the um an 82 game season in the nhl is monotonous uh, which you know I, you hate to say it for fans because every game is important every two points matters um but at the end of the day an 82 game season for players no different than a you know a guy going to work monday to friday um it is more exciting there is more to it but it's how do you bring that day-to-day -day excitement so something like going in between the first and the second period of a, you know, zero, zero game and say, Hey, let's get a win tonight. We have a win tonight. Tomorrow's a day off. It's amazing how that little incentive will drive 
that you know that ten percent extra performance from your team. Um, just little rewards or little like you know it's tough in the NHL because there's so many um, CBA rules and restrictions around that, uh, what you can provide to your team and what you can do. Um, but just that little incentive is uh, you know it's why the KHL does cash. You know <laughs> after a win they'll they'll give you cash. Uh, you know ten thousand dollars for getting the game winning goal in overtime. Um, it's just those little incentives that uh, it, it's amazing how far they go. Like I said, just the offer of a day off after uh, in, a tie, in the middle of a tie game, you tell that to a captain, um, you know, he spreads it to the players and it's amazing how far that will go with your players. So um, just anything like that, anything you can try and do that, you know, you're allowed to do to, to sweeten the pot for them um, and to break up the monotony. Um, you know, maybe tomorrow we're going to go golfing instead of practicing. Um you know, just something like that. It's amazing how that can boost performance five, ten percent in the uh, in the overall of an eighty-two game season. Yeah, I would like to to mention that that works very well with the pros. Uh, would not incentivize your kid to not pass the puck and give him a dollar for scoring goals. That that would be a no-no. Exactly. That's where um, you know I've heard of teams that would, uh, especially like good teams, to incentivize for a shutout. So um, as a from a team perspective. Um, you know, you try and not allow any goals as a team, or that's where I think if you could ever have as a, like, I know it's not legal in the NHL, but if you could ever have like an, a, a team bonus, so, you know, everything should be based off of team wins, team performance versus individual stats, which obviously I know isn't plausible, isn't uh, financially allowed, but you know, that's how you would want to build an incentive structure is going to be based off of team performance and not individual performance. So uh, with your, with your kids and with your minor hockey team, um, you know, I, I'll do it when I'm coaching uh, minor hockey practices. I'll say, Hey, we're going to do these next four drills. If we do them fast, we do them right. Um, I like the intensity. Then we're going to, instead of doing 20 minutes at the end of drills, we're going to do 20 minutes of fun games, whether it's cross ice games or, or some kind of a, uh, even a full ice scrimmage. So, um, using things that they like as incentive um, goes a long way when it comes to, you know, incentivizing players to get more out of practice. So if you're a minor hockey team, you practice three times a week, um, you know, by the third practice, a lot of times it, it falls off. So how can you get uh, better performance in that? Say, hey, if you guys do well for the next uh, 40 minutes in the last 20 minutes, will be any activity you guys want to do. You want to do a five puck shootout for 20 minutes straight? That's what we'll do. That's wonderful. We used to do um, snicker bars for winning the shootout. If the last person doesn't score two tries, goalie's the winner. Exactly. The, so make uh, it fun. That's I, awesome. I like that. Um, so you've had a lot of interesting conversations with a bunch of players, coaches. I'm, I'm curious, maybe what are some things that have come out of those conversations that are just fascinating, enlightening, whatever they may be? You know, let, let us into the room a little bit. Uh, maybe some of those NHL secrets or, you know, McDavid type secrets or Patty Kane, well, not Patty Kane. You're sorry. He's, he's American. Yeah. But maybe some Sidney Crosby moments where you've just been wild and you're like, this is an awesome moment. I wish I had, re had recorded that. Um, it's just amazing to, to see the level of detail that some of these guys uh, go through and the level of detail that they're willing to put into a practice, like the amount of work that Sidney Crosby puts in on a annual basis to, to be the best player in the game. Like, Connor McDavid doesn't just show up at the rink, work one hour, and then, uh, you know, he's the best player. He's worked his entire life to get to uh, where he, he needs to be. Um, and, he, you know, he's done it through multiple sports. He's done it through being, you know, the best athlete and the best person possible. Um, one thing, I, I, you know, not to sound too positive on them, but, it, you know, 
players do an, a, a ton of amazing stuff off the ice. Um, you know, Austin Matthews was doing hospital visits for years before, you know, everyone, uh, anyone ever found out they donate tons and tons of money to charity. Um, Zach Hyman might be, you know, one of the best people I, I've ever been around just as a, you know, complete overall person, literally writes children's books, block shots, um, kills penalties, like literally does everything as a human. So I don't think sometimes uh, hockey players get enough credit for being as good of, you know, people, um, uh, and caring about, you know, people within their own cities that they, uh, uh, you know, sometimes do. I'd say from an individual basis, just just being around some of like these top player skills, like being in the rink or at a practice when, you know, Shea Weber rips a slap shot off the glass um, or, you know, seeing Austin Matthews on a daily basis with his release, um, being around Con- uh, Connor McDavid and just seeing his speed and like the pace that he does everything at. Um, it's just, it, it's special to be around these elite players with these elite um, abilities on a regular basis. Um, yeah, and you, you try and learn from them and you try and see what they do, but you just realize that, um, yeah, like Austin Matthews is an amazing shot, but he's, he's just so special. That's not something that's necessarily transferable to um, someone else. And I think it's huge what you said there. It's, it's not just, showing up to the ring for an hour, doing the gym for an hour. There's, there's so much preparation that goes beyond that. And that's what truly makes the special players is pretty much how they outwork everyone. Uh, yeah. yeah, they were I given mean, some level of talent, but I feel like they, they earn it and then some and how far above and beyond their commitment levels are. The guys that, uh, to the guys that have been around the longest, whether it's a Jason Spezza, Joe Thornton, um, like they truly love the game. They watch the game. They, um, like they're into the game. They understand it. They know the hands of all the players. They're true hockey nerds in a lot of senses. Um, so that kind of helps with the longevity of some of these guys that have been around forever. Um, just their level of dedication to the sport and their level of passion for the sport uh, makes instead of playing till they're 31, they're the guys that can end up playing till they're 40, uh, you know, mid forties where they can really extend out their career by just putting the extra work and watching video when they go home, I would get text messages from Spets at, you know, eleven thirty at night. Hey, you know, I, I can't find the second period on the cloud. Like, you know, I'm trying to watch my shifts from last night, but there's one missing from the second period. Do you know what's going on? And, you know, so the fact that he's willing to put in that work and, um, you know, try and get better and, and try and improve. And I'd say that's, a, again, it's not like um, Austin Matthews just goes to practice and shoots. He would always be going out early. He's always working on his shots. He'd, you know, spent a summer entirely working on one-time shots. Um, so he could be able to play the different flank on the power play. Um, so he's willing to put the work in to become that, that extra special and to take it to the next level. Like if you remember when he first came in the NHL, he played on uh, his forehand. So he wasn't shooting uh, one timers on the power play, but they wanted to be able to switch over to him being on his one time uh, side on the power play and put uh, Mitch on the other side. So he basically spent an entire summer practicing how to shoot one timers. And now he's got an elite one timer in the national hockey league. He went from his first year and scoring like one, one timer goal to, scoring like 15 of them last year yeah it's it's impressive and same thing with like Spezza how long he's been able to elongate his career and play at such a high level I feel like he's like the ultimate fourth liner nowadays and he's getting league minimum but uh, it's quite amazing um I'm curious from that so you're talking about like Spezza watching videos I'm assuming you're watching videos and breaking down technique in the summers 
like players will do that, especially, you know, Matthews with his one timer, you know, how should people go about watching videos, being able to learn from it and truly improve um, and utilize all that video and all that work like you've done and then be able to translate that into actual performance? Well, I say there's, there's two ways to watch video. There's micro watching video and there's macro watching video. So when you watch video, on a, again, taking back to economics, when you watch it on a macro level, you're going through, you're watching the whole game. You're watching for tendencies um, throughout an entire game. When you watch video on a micro level, which is what I tend to do more, that's when you're going through specific events. So that's when if you as a player think that your shot needs work, that's when you need to go through the video. You need to cut out all of your shots over whether it's a practice, whether it's multiple games, however long it is, and you want to go and watch just that specific instance over and over again to see where you can improve. So an example of that was um, I've never taken a face-off in my life. I was a def- like a slug defenseman, stay or stuck at home, stay at home, whatever you want to call it. Um, but suddenly I'm in charge of face-offs for both the Detroit Red Wings and the Toronto Maple Leafs. I would watch about 300 face-offs per game uh, before every game to try and figure out exactly what the opposition is doing. And all I would do is I'd watch, um, say we're playing Boston, I'm watching Bergeron take face-offs on the left side against left-handed players, then I'm watching him take them on the right side against left-handed players, then I'm watching him take them on the left side against uh, righties, then on the right side against righties. I'm just watching multiple instances of the video over and over again to try and pull out tendencies and try and figure out what he's doing. Um, and that led to us being one of the top three face-off teams in the NHL for uh, my last few seasons in Toronto, and we were a, a dominant face-off team in Detroit as well. So when I watch video and I'm trying to figure out either what a player is doing or what I need to improve on a player or what I need to improve in a situation, I just isolate what I'm looking for and watch that thing over and over and over again, trying to get as many um, items into my sample as possible to try and figure out how I can improve that. And so if you're a minor hockey player, you want to improve your shot, go on the ice, uh, get a GoPro, put on the glass, go and take a hundred shots, different types of shots, and then go and watch that over and over again. Maybe when you look that you realize that you're not transferring weight between your feet at all, maybe your hands aren't in the right place when you actually look at it on video. So um, if you're trying to specific to fix one specific thing, look at, um, uh, one specific thing. If you're trying to become a better player overall, that's when you can go and watch your shifts. They'll say, okay, well, I don't like my positioning. In general, I don't like my positioning when you know I'm out on the ice. In general, I'm too far away from the puck when um, you know when I don't have the puck. I'm never in a position to get open. That's when you can watch it on a macro level. So just decide what you're trying to fix, whether it's a macro or micro item, and then um, you know approach it how you need to approach it. Yeah, that's awesome. Like personally, for me, I love to. Like it, it was a breakthrough when I stopped actually watching the puck. I mean, at that point, you're starting to go away from fan and truly into a student of the, the game itself. I think that's that's an important piece to add there as well. But no, I, I love that idea of being able to, like, hey, you want to prove your shot, tape yourself, whether it be on ice, off ice, and, and see what you look like. Because I remember when I saw myself for the first time, I was like, oh my God, am I terrible? Exactly. And that's where, um, yeah, we do video at the NHL. We're lucky. You know, we, I can access any event kind of throughout a game. Um, but video, I think in the next five years, especially is, is going to be more of a thing in minor hockey. Um, almost all rinks have either live barn or some, um, type of live barn where you can actually go through and download, um, videos of the game. Um, so now suddenly all games are being recorded. All minor hockey games are being recorded. Um, so now we're getting access to all this types of video. I think the next step will be 
um, AI, what SportLogic has done with the NHL level. I think if anyone's ever able to do it um, with kind of the live burn level where you can isolate shifts or isolate events, um, you know, in a minor hockey game, I think that'll take it to a next level because that's where, uh, you know, if you go and play in a, a rink and suddenly you're able to go in and buy your shifts from that game, um, you know, for 10 bucks, be able to isolate just your shifts in a game, you know, that's a, a massive or massive uh, benefit for you as a player. So I think where, you know, we've seen video improve the game from 1995 to, you know, 2015, I think video is going to really take a step in minor hockey in the next 10 years where um, we're getting more and more cameras into rinks and video is becoming more and more available and computers are so affordable. Minor hockey associations can uh, really invest in it now. Yeah, and you're, you're a hockey parent as well. So I'm curious how you approach uh, your own kids. Are you more of the uh, hands-off or are you like, be there if they want it, but maybe not over-involved? Or do you say here, you know, and you really want to create that bond with your kid and get involved heavily and like show them video or what's that like for you? Cause I know you've got multiple. Yeah. So I have three boys. Um, my oldest is uh, 10. He's a goaltender. So that's been a whole new, uh, a whole new investment and in, uh, something different for me. Uh, my middle son is seven um, and my youngest son is five. So my, my oldest son played double A hockey in uh, the GTA uh, now I spent hockey in Florida. My seven-year-old is now playing travel hockey in Florida. He's a player. My five-year-old is doing learn to skate. So I've kind of been through the whole ringer um, in minor hockey, GTA, uh, OMHA. I've been involved in all these different uh, levels of minor hockey. Um, so the, the main thing I'd say is anyone involved in hockey is don't push uh, what you love on them. Let them develop the love for it themselves. So none of our boys, we, you know, we'd sign up, uh, you know, for anything more than basically learn to skate, we wanted them to come to us and say, you know, hey, dad, I want to be able to be on the ice more. Hey, dad, I want to do this. Um, so I want them to develop the love themselves and not be, you know, forced to go four times a week on the ice because I want them to be good at hockey. I want them to, you know, want to play hockey. So um, I think that's worked, especially with my, my two oldest boys now who have an absolute love and passion for the game. Um, so from that perspective, I, 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 I try not to get too detailed with them. Um, I try and, you know, mix being a dad and being a hockey coach. Um, but, you know, for my oldest son, I, I try and focus. He's a goalie. I try and focus on certain things, making sure that he's getting back to his feet. Um, he's a bigger goalie, so he's got to try and get back to his feet more to be able to get across to uh, his position. I want him to get um, to the top of the crease as much as possible and not sink back in his net. Um, and I wanted to, you know, focus on a stance a little bit more. So I try and pick certain things and I'll focus on just those certain things. So same as my middle son, he's a player, you know, I'm, I'm focusing on how he holds a stick and trying to get him to bend his knees a little bit more. So a lot of the other stuff I'll let his coaches deal with, but I'm just trying to, you know, in, instill little things that are obviously massively important for them at the ages that they're at and, uh, you know, try and help them that way. So I've also started working with minor hockey associations. I'm working with the Oakville Rangers as the director of coach development with them. So I'm trying to help uh, minor hockey coaches um, follow both the Hockey Canada Canadian pathway and the USA Hockey development plan to, to try and make sure that we're developing players and youth hockey players in the right way. So we A, develop a passion for the game and B, um, help develop them. So at the end of the day, uh, the job of a minor hockey coach isn't to win a single game or isn't to win a championship. It's to A, have as many people love hockey and stay involved in hockey as long as possible and B, develop them to be the best players um, on the ice and be the best people off the ice. And I think that last part is, is the most key. Like you want to develop that passion and that love. And you've obviously done that with your boys and, and 
I think a lot that goes into it is like they, they want to get better. You know, like how much fun is that when like you're one of the better players out there? Like don't rush your kids too too fast. Just enjoy where you're at. Enjoy playing. You know, if you want to pick a few items that are key items you think would help them and if they, they're into that, like you're just breeding confidence, which is really cool. So I love what you're doing there. Um, and we're definitely coming up here on, on almost an hour or so. Want to be cognizant of the time here, but uh, and anything that we didn't hit that you think would be super important, um, just for maybe a fun story, whether it be with Hockey Canada or the Leafs that people would enjoy, or just uh, you know some words of wisdom to youth players and parents as they're driving to the rink. I'd say uh, just a fun story might be on the the ball hockey game in 2013. So um, for the before the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, they had a camp in the summer of 2009 in Calgary where basically the top 60 Canadian players went, um, they practiced, they taught their systems, they taught them how they want to play. Uh, and then they scrimmaged. So they want to do the same thing in the 2013 leading up to the 2014 Olympics. But because of insurance, IIHF was no longer going to cover the insurance for those ice sessions. And the, the insurance, because of, um, if you take the top 60 Canadian players, their contracts are like, $500 million of contracts. So the insurance was like $2 million an hour to go on the ice. So we weren't able to go on the ice and have um, on ice sessions. So uh, Mike Babcock called me one day and he's like, Hey, are we going to be able to go on the ice? I said, no, it, it doesn't sound like we're going to be able to. He goes, well, how are we going to teach our players how we want them, uh, want them to play? He goes, could we do like a walkthrough, like a football walkthrough, go to like a tennis court or something and do like a walkthrough. I said, well, you know, why don't we just do it on the, uh, you know, on the, right on the rink versus doing it on the tennis court? Because that's a great idea. That's exactly what we're going to do. I'm like, oh crap! Like, what did I? <laughs> you know, I'm the video guy. What did I just commit to? Um, so it, it ended up being probably the, the best teaching opportunity I've ever been around. So um, basically, what we did is we we covered the the ice and our international size Olympic size uh, ice surface in Hockey Canada, where the Women's Worlds were held uh, uh, not too long ago. Uh, basically on the same rink that they played on we covered the ice with a fiberglass surface like you put down for a concert we actually got tape we taped out all the red line blue line where the circles are where the creases are and everything like that um, and we had a ball hockey game essentially so what the players would do is they'd come into the dressing room they'd see say this is what our forecheck is going to look like this is the a diagram of what a you know the forecheck is going to be then they'd go into the video theater the same slide would be on the screen the coach would explain the slide. This is how we want to forecheck. This is how, uh, and then we'd show three clips of them playing in the NHL, forechecking how we want to play. Then they'd grab their stuff. They'd go on the uh, um, surface and then they'd do a drill. This is how we're going to forecheck. This is where we want you to stand. Um, and we would do a drill and then they'd come back and kind of redo the loop. This is how we're going to play in the D zone. Um, this is where you're going to stand in the D zone. This is how we're going to switch sides in the D zone. They'd watch, they'd see the slide, watch the video, and then go out and do the drill. Um, so one thing you talk about the level of preparation that NHL coaches are doing. So none of them had ever run a ball hockey practice before, you know, it was Ken Hitchcock, Mike Babcock, um, Claude Julian, Lindy Ruff, like thousands of NHL games, but no one's ever run a ball hockey practice. So the day before, or a couple of days before uh, the NHL players showed up, we took the university of Calgary guys to, um, university of Calgary hockey team to a minor hockey rink and did the drills that we were planning on doing day one. But what we realized is that you can't, actually do a uh, full ice drill in ball hockey because it's so much of a difference in running 200 feet than uh, skating 200 feet so these guys were absolutely gassed and they had a keg party the night before so 
they were completely uh, killed by, um, you know, running 200 feet up and down the ice. So we had to completely change our practice plan because, you know, the drills that we do on the ice weren't going to work off the ice. So, um, you know, because we did that level of preparation, um, you know, we were able to make sure that, you know, Sidney Crosby wasn't running, you know, 14 miles in a, in a practice. So um, that level of detail was pretty incredible. And, uh, you know, it was actually even cool. The best player, one of our uh, NHL players, couldn't show up, um, you know, because of a family emergency. So they took the best University of Calgary player um, and let him basically play on Sidney Crosby's line in the uh, ball hockey uh, session. So we'd have an even number of players on all of our lines. So um, it was it was a pretty cool experience. I'd say it was the best teaching I've ever been around. Uh, whenever you put players on the ice, their competitiveness comes out. They try and do things fast and try and do things competitively and not necessarily uh, focus on learning. So by doing ball hockey, we really focused on, you know, we weren't going to cut anyone based on them not being good in ball hockey. Um, so we were able to provide the best learning experience to really teach our systems exactly how we want to play and, and do it at a pace which is best for teaching and not necessarily based on evaluation. We let the evaluation happen during the NHL season. That's a, that's a pretty amazing story there. And that's, that's so cool. You got to be there and experience all of those players. And what an experience for that kid being on Crosby's line. Yeah, it's actually, uh, oddly enough, I, I even have, uh, sorry to see, but I've got the ball hockey ball uh, signed by all the coaches. Um, that was kind of my memorabilia from the, uh, from the event. Like I was going through a couple of weeks before, like, because we realized we have pucks at Hockey Canada, but we don't have orange ball hockey balls. So what are we going to do there? So, I was going to like pro hockey life and Canadian tire and all these sports stores trying to find like ball hockey balls. that weren't like too hard. So if a guy got in the shin, wouldn't like break his shin and all this stuff. So just uh, stuff I'd never thought I'd have to think of. But yeah. The, so the guy that I, I, I got to think of the guy's name, um, but it, yeah, pretty cool. He literally got to sit by Cindy Crosby in the dressing room, uh, got to plan his line for the drills. Cause he basically showed up, worked hard and uh, you know, got a spot on that. Uh, spot on the ball hockey roster with, uh, you know, top NHL players. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. But, uh, no, that's awesome. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. This was a, a lot of good stories, a lot of good talking pieces and things to take away. And I'm glad you found your way to uh, America and, more importantly, just some warm weather. It had to be some long years out there in Canada. Exactly. Uh, the only thing I miss is uh, Tim Horns up in northern uh, U.S. and Canada, but uh, I'll take the warm weather any day. Yeah, you're, you're always welcome to come visit uh, Columbus here. Wendy's and Timmy's were the same for uh, or had the same ownership for a few years. So we got plenty of those around. Perfect. Look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Greg. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. So before we let you go, though, we'd like to remind you to please like our podcast, subscribe to it, give us a follow, uh, and share this with all the hockey people in your life. We really appreciate uh, growing this community, this podcast. Um, remember, we also have a newsletter, the Hockey IQ newsletter as well. Really excited to continue to grow this. So please help us grow this further by liking, subscribing, following, and sharing uh, with everyone. So. Appreciate you all. Take care. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. 
If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you, Buttes, here next week for a brand new episode.